Bowtech Archery prides themselves on offering a bow for everyone. Whether you have a short draw length, a long draw length, pull 70 pounds or 40 pounds, you're a bow hunter or a target archer, they offer a bow that can be customized to fit your body type. On top of that, their deadlock technology allows you to fine-tune your arrow flight. Visit BowTechArchery.com and check out the SR350 and the CP28. Bowtech Archery, refuse to follow. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully you're doing well. We're getting closer and closer to deer season. In my area, it's about a month away, so I'm in prep mode. I'm starting to target deer, starting to make some decisions, and I'm really excited because I've found some really quality deer in an area that I haven't focused on at all in years, and I'm going back there, and I'm going to try to make a decision to make a, make a kill. Uh, so it's going to be a pretty tough season for me. I'm, I may pass up some of the deer that I was originally targeting to go after this one specific deer. I think a lot of people might be in that boat. You know, they're trying to start to get their, I guess, their ducks in a row, so to speak, planning things out and making sure, you know, they can execute. I just got a new bow. Uh, company sent me a bow. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm doing some shooting. So uh, getting ready for, for that piece of it. So the other piece that I'm kind of focused on right now is finishing up habitat design plans for clients. I'm kind of at the tail end of that. And it's always a rush. I have a few more clients. I have clients starting Geez, I've got clients in a hunting season right now, which is is not a bummer. It's actually a good thing. It's it's fun because I can kind of prep with them, you know, during that early stage of the year. So, you know, I, I'm I'm enjoying I'm enjoying this journey. It's a journey for everybody, including myself. I've got a little break for hunting season, and I start right back up in December. One other thing I want to mention, and I mentioned it last time, I do have a speaking engagement. It's uh, September 16th and 17th in Canandaigua. I'll leave it in the notes. Again, anybody in the New York area that wants to attend, please come visit me. Say hi. I'd like to meet you. Any of the podcast listeners that are out there, you know, it'll be a, a joy to meet you. I will have a speaking engagement both days. I don't have a clue what I'm going to talk about uh, at that point in time, but I'll tell a few stories. So uh, hopefully that's entertaining to folks. So today we've got a brand new guest on, Travis Harmon. So he's a guy that I follow on Instagram, and I've really kind of enjoyed his uh, illustrations of his business. His uh, business is called uh, Creative Habitat LLC. He's out of Indiana. He's been doing this for a bunch of years, and he's kind of got a diverse set of experiences. And in fact, he's kind of got a niche, and this niche is really interesting to me. He does, he's a deer hunter, he's, he's got a lot of history in that, but he really focuses on, I'll just say, pollinator type scenarios or pollinator habitat. And I'm, I'm entertained by this because I'm noticing that even in my areas, I, I notice a shift in interest in this, this field. Beyond that, you know, basic fruit tree plantings, uh, he does deer habitat plans, management layouts, those type of things. So he kind of extends just beyond this. But his niche is, is that. Now, I'm really interested to see what he's doing. And the reason I want to go this route and talk about this topic now is because there's a lot of planning that goes into deciding what plants to put on the landscape, what plants are resident. And you can start those decisions now and you can prep the ground now for kind of that springtime season or actually do some late season planning so let me get them on the line travis you there john teeter i am here all right man welcome aboard i'm rambling today i had a long day i've been all over the place i've been all over the place with my kids my son had football today 
My daughter was running around like a banshee. I'm exhausted. So hopefully uh, you, this can brighten my spirit having a conversation with you. How you been? Hey, I've been well. I hear what you're saying. I had five kids myself. Um, so I went through those trials of needing to run kids here and go there constantly. Um, I'm down to one now, still in school. Uh, so we're, we're, you know, on the downhill slope here. Uh, which is exactly part of the reason why I've been able to start Creative Habitat. Um, really, I freed up a lot of time for me after, you know, four kids got out of school and out of the house. And so I was able to start actually living life. Um, so that's what kind of brought Creative Habitat to fruition. That's awesome. So let's kind of dig a little bit and we'll kind of maybe get into your history as we start to talk about, you know, what we want to do in this is this podcast. But I think we want to decipher the importance of developing habitat for uh, species specific, or in this case, we're probably talking more about pollinator planting, so to speak. So that's going to be a lot of flowers. Um, in some cases, it'll be grasses. Diversity that we're, we're going to kind of maybe discuss in this podcast. I want specific examples, things that you're putting in the landscapes, types of flowers, how you're doing it. I really want to know more about that because I think a lot of the audience doesn't think about this stuff. And I, I think it's really critical to the landscape and just helping the overall ecology. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, diversity is key. Um, when you're looking at habitat, and you really cannot get more diverse than a good pollinator planting. Um, what really brought me into the, the wildflower area is when I first bought my personal property, uh, 35 acres, and the previous owners were mowing about three and a half acres. Uh, I'm not a big fan of mowing, didn't really have the time to do that. Uh, always loved to garden and grow things. I was experimenting with some food potting. Uh, prior to, you know, owning my own property. So I was excited to do some plotting and things like that for deer. So took a portion of the yard, transferred it over into some food plots and decided to put some, try some wildflowers just because I thought it would look nice. Um, you know, didn't turn out to be a fantastic stand the first go around, um, but enjoyed it. Uh, some of those plantings were, it's been 14 years now. Uh, they still exist today and are still producing, producing some flowers. So uh, that kind of caught my attention, you know, early on and just kind of experimented with that throughout the years, uh, primarily focused on deer food plots and those things. But there's always those areas that are not well suited for a food plot, even within the lawn, you know, a hillside, an embankment. Those are great opportunities for, for wildflowers. And I just kind of slowly added on and learn things and then um, just uh, saw the benefit of the pollinator plantings on my property. And that, that's one thing that differentiates, I think, food plots and deer. You know, you plant those. You may see the activity while you're hunting uh, on your trail camera and those kind of things. But a pollinator planting, especially when it's close to your house, the activity is nonstop all day and it's in your face. Um, really enjoy watching the, the butterflies and the bees and the hummingbirds work, uh, the flowers and doing their things. And it's, it's just nonstop and you can enjoy that constantly a little bit different than a food plot per se, because you don't really get to enjoy that daily, the visual aspects of it and watching, you know, really the wildlife take part in it. Uh, so that was a, you know, a big thing that kind of brought me into it and kept me going on it. Uh, and then as well as the, the multi-species benefit that I started to see, uh, not just with the pollinators. So you're dealing with the total ecosystem here. The, the flowers draw in the insects heavy, you know, a lot of moths, a lot of butterflies, a lot of insects. And then the birds come, uh, turkeys come. And, you know, you start to see how that, that total system is working, as well as deer found that they like to browse plenty of varieties of flowers, um, especially in some key periods, uh, early spring at green up, similar to clover, uh, where they're, you know, hitting the clover hard because it's greening up first. A lot of your perennial flowers have established root systems. They're some of the first things to green up. And so they get hit really hard in early spring. Uh, and in the fall as well, a lot of your annuals, when the crops are browning down, soybeans are browning down, a lot of those annual flowers are still growing, still producing right up till frost. 
So there's still some fresh growth there that the deer really key in on there at that transition at the fall before the frost hits. Travis, uh, so, can yeah. can you uh, detail a little bit? And we were talking, you know, most of the listeners here are, are deer guys. So uh, maybe we can kind of you know, wet, wet their taste buds a little bit. What plantings do you see the deer consuming? You talked about early spring. What, what specific plants are you identifying in these pollinator areas or wildfire areas that they're most attracted to? Could you, could you give a, yep. a few to few to the listeners? Absolutely. So one thing's dependent uh, that I've noticed planting, you know, these plantings in a lot of different locations. A lot of it depends on the population density and what else is available to them. You know, there's certain species. I found that deer will eat every single type of flower that you plant depending on what else is available. But if there's good habitat in the area, plenty of food they're going to go after the cream crops and so then you're looking at the difference between annuals and perennials so on the perennial side definitely the gloriosa daisy um, the black-eyed susan that family gets hit really heavy that seems to be one of the preferred perennials primrose is another one that gets hit heavy in the early spring Chasta daisy, a good green leafy plant. I've definitely seen them feeding on that in the spring uh, because it produces a lot of nice growth, uh, but not one of the higher preferred. When you get into the annuals, and these would be more of the fall varieties, sunflowers by far deer's favorite flower. They will pick every single sunflower out of a planting first and foremost. Definitely have plantings that have no sunflowers in them because they've just been cleaned out by deer. And once they get a taste for sunflowers, it's over. I, I can't even hardly grow sunflowers on my personal property now because over the years they've developed a taste for that. The first couple of years I didn't have an issue, lots of nice sunflowers, but now it's a totally different story 13 years later. But cosmos is a big one in the fall, so there's quite a few different varieties of cosmos, but definitely that's one of the preferred. Definitely seen them eat zinnias. You know, big, leafy, salad-looking stuff on your annual side in the fall. They will just about eat any of the flowers. I've had plantings totally wiped out. Uh, there's one this year that we, has actually been a struggle. It's in an urban zone on the backside of a housing addition, a few backyards, close to a city-limit-type woods, super high deer density, and had real struggles trying to get that to grow put tr potted transplants into it they got completely wiped out just really aggressive browsing ended up started to get some growth after applying malorganite uh, fertilizer so courtesy yeah. of the people of milwaukee um, i've definitely had success with that with sunflowers as well um, applying that a couple times throughout the life of the planting it will definitely reduce browse Sometimes we'll not eliminate it, but it does help reduce it, and it's made a difference on this planting so far, so we're kind of in a recovery on that. Travis, um, can you can you quickly explain what malorganite is? Because I think the audience may not know. Sure. Uh, it's a, you know, a common lawn fertilizer, low nitrogen fertilizer, a slow release. You can buy it at any of your, you know, usually your local farm stores or uh, lawn and garden centers. I've seen it at Walmart before. Um, it's made... From This is my understanding. It's made from the uh, human waste from the people of Milwaukee. That's where it was originally developed. And it does have a particular smell. And so I do resist using it at first. It's not overwhelming. It doesn't smell like raw sewage. Uh, but it certainly doesn't smell like your typical 191919 19, 19 or, you know, urea. Uh, it has a particular smell. And the plants will absorb some of that. It, it must make them taste different or it's just the smell is there that kind of turns them off of it. Which is really interesting because when I bought my property, there was a, there was a trailer on the property. And so there was an existing septic system um, and stuff. We removed the trailer. It was pulled out. But the leach bed and all that from the septic system was there. I came in behind that and planted white pine trees. And some of those pine trees went through that existing leach bed that was there. The first couple years really noticed a difference in the deer browse. They did not touch those pine trees that were planted in the leach bed of that previous trailer. Everything else just outside of that, it was getting rubbed, getting, you know, browsed on. 
So even those trees being in that residual or whatever was left from the leach bed, it kept the deer off them to a certain point. Um, so there is definitely something to that, a great trick to keep in your back pocket. Yeah, good example. Interesting uh, observation for sure. All right, I want to go back in time. So, you know, historically the old CRP programs that they focused on as being pollinator-based were pretty much grasses. Now there's kind of been more of an evolution. And I know there's conservation programs through NRCS or otherwise that are, you know, supporting you know, a percentage paid or, you know, per acre basis, et cetera, you know, for these pollinator planting is they've diversified. So, you know, likely there's very few sedges or rushes or, you know, grasses in general. Um, there will be some grasses, but a lot of times it's it's a legume or non-legume forb type, and you're talking flowers. And I know that one of the strategies, and I've put together pollinator plantings for clients, and I want to go back to another topic in a second, um, breaking them down into kind of that early, mid, late season, um, at least having a minimum of three or four in each one of those segments. And like you're talking about is diversifying. Um, and then one of the strategies I have is I add partridge pea, sunflowers to the mix, you know, black-eyed Susans, plants that are of interest to deer. So you're not just having a flower component that is, you know, fully attracted to bees and, and wasps and, uh, you know, other types of mammals, or in this case, we're talking birds, you know, you, you diversify it. So there is some interest for deer for that matter. So maybe there's a, a balancing act, so to speak, in some of these designs. And I, I want to get into that for a second. First off, though, I want to talk back to the point you made originally. Where do you want to put these areas and how do you decipher precisely what areas you select on the landscape? I can tell you, I just worked with a client the other week and we were talking, you know, where do we want to put pollinator habitat? Because we, we, in this case, we were going to introduce some bees into the area, non-native bees, European bees. Uh, most of the bees in our areas are, are not native. And by the way, most of the native bees are ground nesters for that matter. I, I don't know if a lot of people have awareness for that. So when you're doing your layout with these pollinator plantings, bare ground is essential for those particular uh, species. So just have awareness of that. So I'm just adding to Travis's perspective. So when you're starting to select your locations, what are you basically thinking about? Because a lot of people need to start from scratch. Like I've got a wet area, a dry area. Think of the soil texture, slope, grade, those type of things, aspect. Just kind of give the basics to the listenership. Sure. You know, that's one one of the great things about wildflowers and pollinator mixes is there's so many choices and um, selections out there. Um, You know, you can, like you mentioned, moist you can get moist mixes for moist areas, dry areas, short mixes, tall mixes, specific color varieties, straight flowers. You know, I mean, the options are just unlimited. And that's one of the great things is that there's so many different options to choose from. And you're right. It does go back to kind of your site selection on, you know, what is the soil type? How much sunlight is it getting per day? What is in the current state? You know, a big critical input is what's there now. Was it previous ag? Is it fallow ground, the side of the hill? A lot of different inputs. The goals, I always revert back to the goals. You know, there's different quality of these plantings, and you kind of alluded to it with the CRP program. For the business, we do some mid-contract maintenance on CRP programs, familiar with that, and the management strategy. There, you know, in those programs, I feel like it's kind of a peanut butter spread. There's certain standard work behind the activities, standard seed mixes, and they're really applying that across a huge landscape. And it's not really tailored to a specific area, a specific site, or a specific property owner's goals. And so I'm not a huge fan of the CRP programs, their mixes. Um, Some of the pollinator programs out there are fantastic. Uh, They'll share in the seed cost. Um, You know, they really want to encourage people to plant more wildflowers. And that's part of the reason why we need to be doing it is because of the endangerment around some of the pollinators. You know, you mentioned the bees, a lot of talk about monarch butterflies now. And there's a lot of wasted space out there that, that could be used to support those species. But going back to the programs, you know, some of the requirements behind those programs, um, they want to see the ground farmed for three years prior. You know, and really they know that they're putting their investment into that and they're going to have the most success when there was some previous weed control, broadleaf weed control, done on the piece of ground. 
Um, you're going to have better success if there was some of that taking place prior. And so they'll put those kind of conditions on the contract that, that, you know, it needs to be that type of situation before they'll put the investment in. And so, you know, I'm, if, if a person has the resources to do it themselves and they don't need the additional help, uh, that's the route I prefer to go. If they can benefit from signing up for the programs, great. You know, that's certainly an avenue. But, you know, kind of going back to the goals and then the seed selection, um, there's a lot of different quality of plantings, I want to say. And so I would call a CRP grade seed mix uh, to me personally, it's a low quality mix, a lot of variety, great for a peanut butter spread application. Um, but like you, I want to, I want my mixes a little more tailored for my goals. And so then you, on the other hand, you've got what I do a lot of is lawn grass transitions. Uh, these are in people's backyards. They want to set up a pollinator habitat. They, they usually you want a really nice, clean, crisp planting in those scenarios where not a lot of sedges uh, like you're talking about. Sometimes you put some clump grasses in there and things like that, but really trying to more focus in on the blooms there and the color aspect of it. Still plenty of pollinator activity and those kind of things, but you're just looking for, I guess, a little, a little more quality of a stand. And do, so when you're, yep. Do you, so in that, gra- so in the yard setting, for example, somebody's sure. backyard and you're dealing with what's ever existent, you're removing the broad leaves over time, or you're doing it initially in that season. Um, are you planning a lot of these in the springtime? And from that, you're, you're managing the, the cool seasons. And then, you know, maybe you're no-tilling into those areas. Like, can you maybe break down some of the basics of, of how you approach like a landscape setting? And let's, let's just assume we're not dealing with wet conditions. They're relatively dry conditions or not overly dry, but you know, moderately. Um, what do you do in those situations? Like how do you approach like actually implementation work? Um, one of the, the two best case scenarios for establishing a really clean, nice looking, long-lasting pollinator stand. And when I say long-lasting, the first year is the most critical uh, to establishing, uh, you know, a quality planning on year two and three when the perennials establish, a lot like clover. Um, And so the two best-case scenarios for a transition is previously farmed ag uh, because that's had really good weed control done on it usually. Um, And then long grass is right there with it. Why? Uh, because normally lawns have been mowed repeatedly. There's not a heavy seed bed of broadleaf weeds waiting for you there. Um, a lot of grasses, but grasses can generally be dealt with just like we deal with them in clover, a little cleft, and, you know, we take care of it. And it's usually a one-time application uh, after the flowers have, have established, maybe three to four weeks. You're looking for the grasses to be somewhere around six inches or something like that, and you're going to apply a grass-selective herbicide, knock those back, and you're usually good to go after that. Now, that brings in, uh, I guess, a layer of difficulty on establishing a meadow mix. You know, when we talk about the time, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, when you when you talk about the timing of planting, um, I plant seed all the way from the spring all the way up to mid-August, expecting good color this year, this season. And our frost date, typically average frost date around here is October 16th. Sometimes we go after that. Sometimes, you know, we're a little before. But, you know, usually I'll run it right up to August 15th. My favorite time to plant is in June, um, you know, right there toward the end of the wet spring season. Um, you know, but not into that super hot dry season of July and August. Now this year was a little abnormal where we had a super hot dry June. It was absolutely terrible. Uh, but that is normally the optimal time, um, to plant what I want to target, but you can have a quality planning as long as the preparations were done prior to seeding. And that's probably one of the biggest fail modes is just seeding too quickly. Um, you know, perennial wildflower seeds are very finicky and I want to say they're weird. Uh, I, I have a small nursery where I germinate seeds and raise them in pots and use those for aesthetics and those backyard pollinator plantings. But it's taught me a lot about the germination frequency of 
uh, perennial wildlife, wildflower seed. Um, it's nothing like beans and corn that is ready to pop out of the ground, you know, on a two tenths inch of inch of rain. Um, it's what I call really a germination event. We're dealing with surface seeding on finicky seed um, that may or may not open. So you really want those optimal conditions when you're timing your seeding. You're better off to wait for the appropriate, the right timing when you're going to have a four to five day, you know, moisture period with cool temperatures, potentially cloud cover. It's going to hold that moisture on the surface. So that's definitely critical. Um, kind of back to, you know, the site selection. When you're coming in on lawn grass, you know, any, anywhere you look and you go out there on the Internet and you start, and that's how I started, going out on the Internet and searching for how do I grow wildflowers. Um, you know, a common methodology, and I think this approach will get you a pretty good stand in most cases, is there's a recommendation to, to kill the existing vegetation, let it, let it rest and let it germinate on its own. Don't put any seed on it. Basically what you're doing is letting any residual root systems that are left after the first kill, any surface seeds or weed seeds, you let them germinate and then you do another kill. And then you start thinking about putting your seed on uh, without heavy disturbance of the soil. Um, because every time you stir that soil, you're stirring up seeds that are buried in there that are just waiting to pop and you bring them to the surface and you're probably creating a worse situation. So really that is kind of the standard recommendation. If you go out and look is a couple rounds of germination and kill and then apply your seed. And because mostly because broadleaf weeds are a problem, uh, there's no herbicide type application that you can put on those that aren't going to hurt your flowers. Grasses are not usually an issue. Um, but when you're trying to establish a meadow type setting where you want those warm season clump grasses, which can often take two to three years to fully establish, you know, to mature, um, very difficult to go in and control the cool season grasses first or, you know, control those without harming your, your warm season grasses. So in those cases, and I'm going to throw a little nugget out for you, in those cases, what I prefer to do is to seed some flowers, no, no warm season grasses. We're not really seeding a meadow mix at this point. We're going to seed some flowers, and we're going to address the cool season grasses that come. And then I'm going to do an overseed of my meadow mix after I've controlled the cool season grasses, I'm going to throw more seed on it and let it, let it do its thing. Um, so that kind of gives you an avenue to address the cool season because cool season grasses are your number one enemy, really. Besides, you know, broadleaf weeds, weeds are a problem, but cool season grasses will choke your flowers out in a heartbeat and they'll grow much faster. And that's one of the problems with establishing a good wildflower planting is the seed is very slow to germinate. Um, sometimes you'll be out to 30, 40 days before germination's really getting started on some of your perennials. By that time, your mayor's tail, your, your ragweed, all your cool season grasses, even your annual wildflowers, oftentimes they'll be 12, 15 inches tall before you're starting to see the perennials germinate. And so, you know, it's really critical to have that cool season grass control early, allow some flowers to establish. They're going to help, you know, kind of canopy out with, you know, additional weed control and then dump your meadow mix on it. And, you know, when you're looking at CRP programs, and this is where I think wildflowers scare a lot of people. And I've heard it from customers going to look at jobs. I saw a so-and-so down the road flower field, and now it just looks like a bunch of weeds. And, you know, a lot of times when CRP programs are established and fields are planted, it's we throw the seed on and we walk away. And then what comes, what comes. And that's normally what you end up with is, you know, problematic broadleafs come in. Some of these plants, you know it just like I do, can disperse hundreds of thousands of seed. And so those annual broadleaf weeds, big enemies like pigweed, mare's tail, ragweed, um, the first year can be a real problem. And what you really want to do is try to address those early the first year. And it really sets you up for success the second and third year. Once you get beyond that first year, it's really about timely mowings at that point. Um, you know, your perennial plantings that are in the second, third year, 
they're going to finish quite a bit earlier than, than a first year planning. And I always advise my customers that the second year is going to look totally different than the first. Uh, you're going to have different flowers, different colors, different waves of bloom. And that's one thing great about the wildflowers. And you mentioned it about having multiple varieties in there so that you're going through bloom periods and it's changing colors that will look like a totally different planning a month apart. Uh, depend on what flowers are in season. Travis, but, I've got a question for you. So I want to go back. So when you're establishing, we talked about minimal disturbance earlier. In your scenario, are you using a no-till drill to establish these uh, these plantings? If, I'm assuming that some of them you're actually hand planting, but some of them you're planting from seed. Is it? Are you using a no-till drill? So I, I love when I get asked what drill I use uh, to plant <laughs> okay. the flower plant. Okay. Uh, and my answer is always Armstrong. There's no such thing as an Armstrong drill. I have never drilled wildflower seed. Um, I broadcast 100% of all my plantings. Um, I do some potted transplants, but that is very on corners. Um, Some of the perennial plants take three years to really fully establish. So to dress out corners, edges, I like to drop in some more mature plants to give some nice pop the first you know, year or two and the customer's not really waiting on that. But yeah, the majority is germinated from seed, uh, 100%. And yeah. Um, okay. That's good to know. Cause I think a lot of people think that they need, you know, significant equipment to do this. So you're saying, no, that isn't the case. And no, you can just, just broadcast a seed. Yeah. Yeah. I pour a lot of seed through my solo, you know, crank spreader, dibble, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that is what I'll give them a little plug. I would burn out an earthway cedar every single year. Absolutely. Um, I burn yeah, I, mean, I burn out one every year. Yes. I can burn out one. I think so my math is my math is correct. I've done this uh 3 years in a row. I've burned out one every year. 700 pounds of seed, I can burn one out in 700 pounds yeah. of seed. So yeah, so the, don't the listen don't yeah, don't listen to people that say that that is the number one. I I just looked up the other day what what did I pay for? $59 or something like that per se. There are better cedars out there. I, I have really liked the the solo cedar. Okay, uh, I'm on my second season. Um, hundreds of millions of seeds have gone through that thing, and it's yeah. still cranked in top notch shape. Now, I will add one big thing, and I it took me a while to learn this, and I I probably heard it on a podcast or saw it on a video, but when you're running fertilizer through it, uh, it's real critical to clean those out, wash them out afterward. Uh, it's super corrosive, so that will make your cedar last a lot longer if you take a couple extra minutes, if you get running fertilizer through it to do a rinse out. Um, otherwise, it will corrode fast. Um, but, yeah, I mix in my seeds, so that's one thing that's very common with wildflower seeds. When you're seeding it, mixing it with a filler. There's a couple benefits to doing that. It you know allows for more even distribution. Uh, if you look at a, a good heavy mix of wildflower seed, there's a lot of difference in the seed. Some of it's super fluffy. And that's one, you know, I, I've never seen a planting like what we're doing that's been done with the drill. And I'm not even sure that it's possible to do because of the differences in the seed. Some of it is super fluffy and is even pretty tough to get it to go through just like the solo cedar. So a filler that'll help draw the seed through, you know, as you're broadcasting it, um, huge benefit there. It's almost impossible to not have something. Um, and then also the visual aspect of whatever your filler is, um, some of those wildflower seeds are super tiny. I mean, they're like specks. And so whatever you're using as a filler can kind of give you a visual for that you're getting adequate seed coverage. Um, I've used lime a lot of times. Um, I like 19, 19, 19 fertilizer. So you, normally you do not want to fertilize flowers. Um, I traditionally go into it, not want to use fertilizer, but to use it to spread the seed, it's a low quantity. And the coloration of a, you know, a mix 19, 19 or 13, 13, whatever, the, the coloration gives you a nice visual that you can see that you, where your seed dispersal is at and then I got pretty even coverage um, so yeah super critical there on using some kind of filler with a with a visual aspect when you, when you are looking at the the, the, the texture of the soil uh, and because we talked kind of about multiple cycles of management with herbicide are you expecting there to be 
a decent amount of bare spots. So you're prepping the ground some time, waiting for it to get in a certain state, and then and then applying your seed in the right conditions. We talked about the moisture. Is that pretty much your yep. process? Okay, uh, good. That, uh, that's a good. That's a good standard process. And I guess you know, there's. I really don't believe there's any one perfect way to do every scenario and it's just like deer management that every property is a little bit different and just every planting is a little bit different where the soil is different what it's coming from and going to and all those things I use about six different techniques I want to say to get my seed on and it's all kind of dependent on those variables and what the goal is if the goal is a super clean planting you know, and, and you're always going to have some, and we call them weeds. Wildflowers are weeds themselves, uh, but, you know, the true weeds, uh, bull thistle, you know, right. uh, ragweed, mayor tail, those kind of things. If you're looking, you're always going to have some of that, um, but this should never take away from the flowers. You know, when you look at the planting, the first thing you notice shouldn't be giant mayor's tail in the back. Um, so I guess, you know, that kind of impacts how I'm going to, choose to go about seeding is what quality of planting are you trying to achieve and then what's it coming from if you're coming from a starting state of the agriculture field or the the lawn grass you're in a great starting spot worst case scenario is subsoil and so that is the number one failure mode i experience now um, is when you have a subsoil situation, it could be on a new home construction. Usually sure. uh, somebody's brought fill dirt in, just super low quality soil. Um, that can be pretty difficult uh, to get stuff established. It takes more time, more moisture, more TLC. Um, i experimenting this year in a few of those uh, scenarios with a dry area mix. And so that's yet to be determined if it made a significant difference, kind of trying a, a dry area mix on a subsoil. Um, but, you know, subsoil is bad, but just as bad is super organic black soil. And, you know, once you get something established, and it's not muck, we're not talking peat or muck, but we're just talking very rich, black, um, organic matter soil that once you get it established, it grows like crazy and does well, but it's very difficult to get that established. And my, my feeling is it's because your surface sowing the seed, the ground sucks up the moisture so quickly because it's so aerated. And then the sun bakes it very quickly. That top half inch quarter inch dries out and sun because the soil is so black tough situation to get the seed established but normally once you do uh, it does really well and so those are kind of two extremes you got you know your subsoil which is on one extreme and then you got your super black organic soil that's on the other stream uh, other extreme both equally difficult really right in the middle is the best place to be with some nice sandy loom we all love that yeah um, yep now clay flowers do great in clay uh, once you get them established and um Clay is wonderful to grow in once perennials are established. And, you know, looking at clover, perennial wildflowers are a lot like clover. And where clover will do well, the wildflowers will do well. You're really looking for minimum four hours sunlight. That's like a bare min. Um, once you start going up from that, the quality of your planting is going to increase. Uh, they, are, they do have shady mixes, and I plant a lot of shady mixes on the edges of yards and those things that tolerate more. Uh, shade, but you'll definitely see a lot of cross contamination across mixes. You know, there's certain flowers that are just pretty versatile and will grow about anywhere. Um, so you'll see some commonality across mixes. Creative habitat. We have our our we have four mixes that we offer. Okay. Um, these mixes really, in in our scenario, this is what we're planning for our customer projects, and they fit the bill for about eighty percent of the scenarios. You know, we have a meadow mix that contains your your seven different warm season grasses and um, close to 40 varieties of wildflowers. And then we have a short mix that, you know, is great for pond edges where you still maintain some visibility and, you know, it gets generally less than three foot tall. Then there's a couple other mixes that are a little taller and just have some varying variety in it. Can people um, come directly to you to buy those mixes? 
Yes, we. I do offer those. I started offering those seed mixes two years ago, okay. um, and yeah, I sell some seed every year. And you know, and it, people have reservations, I believe, about planting the wildflowers because of what I alluded to earlier. They've seen CRP type plantings, and there's they don't like the way they look long term. But what I believe, and I know you've seen it because you follow my Instagram, what we're doing is not like that. Um, uh, in, in all reality, John, I don't know that I've ever seen what we're doing, um, outside of magazines and pictures, um, you know, not in the scale and I guess the manner that we're doing it. And then when people see what we're doing, they want it because it's colorful, it's clean and low maintenance, you know, and that's really where I'm looking to take this is, uh, you know, really the lawn grass we have a lawn grass epidemic in the United States. Uh, in 2005, they estimated like 40 million acres of lawn grass in the United States alone, the lower 48. It's just a huge waste. I'm not, lawn grass definitely has its place, but we by far have too much of it. And I see people mowing massive chunks of lawn grass that would look outstanding in a great pollinator planting. And I think, you know, like you said, you're noticing a shift. Uh, even in New York, yeah. we're seeing it down here in Indiana, more people are, and technology has come a long ways. I mean, we have to recognize that um, the wildflower seed market's a lot different than it was 20 years ago. Technology advancements and herbicides and even planting methodologies and guys like us that are out there doing it um, are going to, you know, make this better and easier for people. And that's where I'm looking to really go with it is how much lawn grass can we transition to wildflowers? And as people see it and see the benefits of low maintenance, I mean, we go down to mowing it one time a year and it looks outstanding. Um, people are going to buy into that. I think that's where we need to go to get away from this long grass situation. Wildflower meadows are well-known carbon sinks. Um, you know, the climate change and all that jazz around, uh, carbon, it's just, it's, it's really the future. And I think where we need to go, um, with our lawns and it brings more people into kind of the wildlife, uh, management aspect of it. Um, it, I think it, it broadens the market and kind of gets more think, people thinking about wildlife and they see the benefits of it as well. So let me kind of add to you, you've, you've piled on a lot. There are two things that I, I want to recognize for those deer guys out there. And there's been some specifics, obviously, you know, for foreshadowed or explained, at least in this portion of the podcast, you know, these layouts, there's specific layouts that I think of when I think about pollinator habitat. And then we get into interest for deer in those areas and how you do that as well. I, I think we'll save that for another podcast because I have a bunch of concepts that I want to lay out uh, for the listenership of how I approach these things. And obviously, Travis, you, you'll have a, a perspective on that as well. The one thing I would suggest is actually for anybody who's listening to this podcast, um, a lot of you that own land that are thinking about you know, this and this topic, and you're saying to myself, well, what's the relevancy? I can tell you one of the relevant topics is if this is a family affair, you're going to your land, you're working on things, and you have a meadow or prairie setup like we're talking about earlier, and this open ground that you can utilize for a particular purpose, particularly around cabins or camps or whatever homes you're living at, you know, when you're at those locations, setting up these areas and you're fine that your wives and kids will have a high interest value in those particular, you know, settings. And, and again, that's a driver. Now you've got an interest, you know, where maybe your family doesn't hunt, but they like the setup that you've created. And, you know, that's an appealing attribute that brings them to that locations, you know, that, that allows you to go work in those areas and, and support the, you know, demands of, of developing kind of a pollinator habitat. And then everyone sees, wow, this is really a cool thing. You can do that throughout your property in different areas. And then it comes it becomes a visit site for the family. So think about that as just kind of a core strategy, maybe to get more time out in the field and uh, to kind of sequester in your family to have interest. Strategy I just talked about with a client that listens to this. And he said, you know, what can we do in this field setting? And we said, well, we're going to create a pollinator habitat. And I'm going to recommend certain species of plants that he employs, et cetera. So think about that. Number two, I was on a trip recently and a guy grabbed me by the shirt and he said hey you're that whitetail landscapes guy i've heard of you you're a new york guy blah blah so he's going on and on and on and i'm listening to him and man he's big into plantings like just the the concept of 
putting plants on your landscape and starting to analyze those and their benefit and putting, you know, plant selection as matching the, the plant to the soil, the things we've talked about earlier in the podcast, just conceptually understanding all these kind of foundational elements and making good decisions. In this case, we're talking about open settings with good sunlight, right soil texture for the plants matching again, the plant to the soil type, right? And that's critical. We got to think of slope, grade, aspect, all those things that roll into this. So, you know, have a holistic view and make those empowered decisions to make sure you're setting up, you know, kind of the right layout. Otherwise, hire somebody to do that and, and don't waste your time, right? Uh, Travis is an expert in this area. This is what he does. And if you follow him on Instagram, you're going to be amazed at the, the pictorials, that the illustrations of what he does. He's impressed me big time because I love following. It's beautiful. And if anybody shows their family, I'd like to do this on my property or I'd like to do this in my yard, you're going to create a lot of interest. And, and I would just, you know... Uh, commend you Travis for you know seeking out this business and and helping people transform their yards Uh, we talked about uh, you know the carbon suck earlier and climate shift right and those are all critical considerations we're talking about not applying large amount of herbicides once these are established mowing hand picking whatever the case may be we need to establish you know pollinator habitat for those pollinators that that are degrading in the landscape and uh you know I, i think i read a study recently about you know the degrading percentage of native bees in the landscape most of the bees that are, you're seeing at least the ones that they're bringing in uh, they're european varieties uh, they're not natives what, the way that they populate and you know propagate plants is a lot different than the native style so there's a lot that goes into you know the clustering and clump, clumping of plants on the landscape and the, the related pollinator activity around that. So I'm, I'm piling on a little bit without too many specifics, but there's a lot that goes into this and uh, it's a, it's a little overwhelming and, and that's why you need to reach out to an expert. Uh, that, that, that would be my recommendation. And I am with you one, the NRCS programs, the federal programs, I stay away from those with my clients. It, the cost savings isn't really worth it per se, although these mixes are pretty expensive per acre. So you're going to spend a fair amount of money to get the seed on the landscape. And, uh, you know, that will make you have to do the homework as you had to do years ago. So uh, just want to add to your to your rant, Travis. So uh, anything else on your end, man? No, you definitely hit some nails on the head head there. Um, one note I had here on, you know, the question of why wildflowers, because uh, the chicks dig them, man. Yeah, I mean, that everybody loves wildflowers and it definitely pulls in, you know, like you said, the wife, the kids. Yeah. Great, great point there. And then you mentioned the bees. Um, so that's, you know, one aspect of me as a, on my personal property, I've, um, going on 15 years now I've owned it. And, you know, once you get your, your food plots established, um, you know, after so many years you get your ducks in a row, then you're really looking at optimization and trying to optimize your property to benefit the wildlife and benefit you and honey bees and honey is a great way to do that. Um, you know, I, I'm into honeybees recently got into it, have several hives. We pulled some harvest last year. We're, we're on track for a great harvest this year. I've really been amazed at how you can just let the bees do their thing and, and, you know, watch them work and then get that reward at the end of the season. And, you know, with the current situation and what we all saw during COVID and, you know, the talk about the food shortages and crises around that, we can really begin to start maximizing the use of our property to meet our, our wildlife goals, you know, our whitetail hunting goals, plus service our families better. And, and fruit trees are a great way to do that. Uh, the honeybees. I mean, these are really low inputs. Once you get it established, it's low input to maintain it. And, and you're reaping that reward. And, and, so, I, and I know you do some homesteading as well. Is that kind of where you're leading down? So I, you know, like I said, I raised five kids. I spent 25 years, you know, in the CNC machining world and was raised on a cattle farm. And so homesteading has always just kind of been uh, a way of life for us, I guess, Um, trying to help, you know, make ends meet and stuff when we were young. Um, But I, I think once your property, you know, to really optimize it, that's when you're really clicking, Um, When you're servicing the wildlife, you're drawing in lots of wildlife, you can see the change in your property uh, and the amount of wildlife that are using it. And then you're pulling those benefits out as well. Um, That's when things are really clicking. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a great spot to be. 
So Travis, I want to try to end here because we're getting towards the end of our time. Let's just, uh, let, let's pause and say, you know, we're going to get you back on. There's a lot more to talk about. We can get in some more specific strategy, layout, those type of things. But more importantly, what's, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, so I do have a Facebook account. Um, I've kind of switched more to doing our active and recent content on Instagram. So that's a great spot. We do have a website, creativehabitatllc.com. Um, so you can reach out through there. Uh, you can re- hit up John and he can put you in contact with me. Um, you know, we've done work. We're located in northern Indi- Indiana. I've done work in Illinois, as far south as Indianapolis. Uh, Creative Habitat's just five years old, and it is my side gig. Um, so my full-time job, I'm a black belt at a medical device manufacturer. But there, that is coming to a close. My, my 25-year career is coming to a close pretty soon. And then Creative Habitat is going to become my full-time focus. And so that's when you're really going to see Hungry, John. You know, what, what's <laughs> been going on on Instagram and stuff, that's my part-time gig. So um, we've kind of been in development, I want to say, the past couple years while I'm still working full-time at my regular job. But like said that's coming to a close and then I'll be full-time focused on this and and can't wait to get to that and hopefully we can expand some horizons at that point but yeah yeah I'll be happy to to talk to people and I'd love to have some new followers on the account see what kind of cool things we're doing yeah and I appreciate that man and everyone reach out and I love that you you know you're you're just clear on the fact that you're building this but what you've built so far I've been impressed with um, I don't think people are doing it the same way and I think your content is awesome um, it definitely opened my eyes to thinking a little bit differently, you know, about landscape design and, and more specifically, you know, how to optimize everything and don't have wasted space. If you can, um, I do a lot of permaculture stuff. So I, I, my perspective on like design layout is a lot of different, is different from a lot of consultants. You know, I'm not just doing the, the, the standard deer thing. Okay. I'm looking at the entire landscape, the ecology, the layout, and I'm thinking more so like we talked about earlier, making it a family affair, you know, credit being critical of what's a necessity and, and how to create that kind of enjoyment. When you start building ecology across the board, we're talking about insects, but then we're talking specifically about those insects create attraction for birds, those birds being turkeys for that matter. And how you do that specific layout and landscape design, where you're going to create great brooding cover, right? Um, And that's really important, you know, certain times of the year. And then having that food source availability, that's critical for a lot of plants or excuse me, for a lot of animals and insects across the land landscape and thinking, you know, a little bit more along those lines. And I, I think a lot of times when you're looking, you know, species specific, um, we're talking about deer specific all the time, which are, they're a generalist and they survive well in a lot of areas is assuming they have the right type of uh, landscape features. You know, when we start getting into grouse habitat and we're going to get into some other things this, this winter that are a little bit unique and different to my area, building grouse habitat. I want to focus on that a little bit more. That's a very habitat specific species that you can build great cover on. Anyhow, so just getting off tangentially, there's a lot that goes into this this design philosophy, and I think taking these inputs and starting to kind of manifest them into an opportunity, and we talked earlier about opportunity in other podcasts, this is just optimizing everything, thinking more precisely how, to, how about you add value to your property, and then the related benefit is going to be far beyond just the deer piece of this, and I think that enjoyment piece is going to be far greater. So, Travis, I'll kind of end with that. I want you to, you know... Continue to follow us. Um, I can't wait to have you back on. We'll probably break down things a little bit further and explore uh, more of your knowledge. So thank you for contributing today. Hey, man, I really appreciate the invitation. This is actually the first podcast I've ever been on. Um, So I really appreciate you reaching out to me and giving me an opportunity to talk to your listeners. Uh, I've listened to your podcast and you've had some fantastic guests on really a lot of knowledge and uh, great help to people when they're starting out, I'm sure. Yep. And that's the goal. We're just helping people improve. And that's, that's the number one reason we're doing this. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up and thanks for following us. So talk to you again soon. All right, man. Yep. All right. Bye. All right. See ya. Maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.